You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music one of rock and roll's most prolific and inventive characters is jack white the founder of the white stripes i'm greg cott of the chicago tribune and i'm jim diorgatis from wbez and columbia college jack white gave us a rare in-depth interview and talked about his entire career spanning the white stripes to his new solo album blunderbuss Greg and I talked to him at his third man studios in Nashville, Tennessee. That's this week on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. That is the Arctic Monkeys with their version of the Beatles' Come Together. You probably saw that if you were one of the billion people who tuned into the opening ceremonies of the Olympics a few days ago. The Arctic Monkeys were one of several bands and artists to perform as part of this four-hour extravaganza staged by Danny Boyle, the uh, U.K. film director. $92 million, Greg, it cost. $92 million, and yet, Jim, these performers were barely paid at all. Arctic Monkeys, Dizzy Rascal, Frank Turner, Emily Sande, Paul McCartney making each one UK pound. I think it's the second cheapest McCartney gig ever. I mean, I'm thinking back London, rooftop, 69 with oh, the that, Beatles. That was free. That yeah. was a freebie. He only got paid a buck fifty for this one. Man, here's a guy who's charging two, three, four hundred, five hundred bucks for a concert ticket, but McCartney giving it up for the crown, giving it up for the old home team in England. They're already making money from these songs, this performance. There's a compilation of all the music performed at the opening ceremony named Isle of Wonder that is in the top five already in Britain, France, Belgium, Spain, and the U.S. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the great song Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes. That band's founder, Jack White, is our very special guest today on Sound Opinions. Actually, Greg and I went down to Nashville, Tennessee to interview this Detroit musician in his amazing studio record store there now, Third Man Records. Born John Gillis, White gave us a full-ranging chat about his life growing up in Detroit, the beginning and the end of his most famous band, The White Stripes, his numerous side projects, and finally, his new solo album, the first of his career, Blunderbuss, released earlier this year. I started the interview with Jack and asked him how music came into his life. Jack, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. I want to start at the beginning, and I mean the real beginning. 
I know that in part this new album was inspired by the death of, of your brother, right? Mm. And you've said that he really instilled in you a love of movies and pop culture. Yeah. Tell us how you first fell in love with music and how you first caught this incredible bug that dominates your life. Do you remember, mm. was it an older brother's record or what was it? Yeah, my older brothers all played instruments. So, you know, they had a band going and they, they, they all, a cousin who lived on the street also played like clarinet, fiddle, electric guitar as well. So the attic where they all slept, because there's a lot of kids in the, you know, there's like three of them slept up there, I think, at the time when I was maybe like five years old. But they, there was a drum kit up there, mm. you know, all kinds of pawn shop guitars and stuff. It was second nature to play any of those instruments. But I loved playing the drums from early on. I liked, you know, did recordings with them when I was like four or five years old. And um, always played, the whole time I was growing up, just, just did nothing but play the drums. I, I played other instruments a little bit, like guitar a little bit or whatever, but didn't really care about it. What was the scene like in in Detroit? Uh, did you feel like there was there was bands to play in? There were role models for you as a, as a as a guy to be playing in bands. How did that all start? That you you got took that next step to actually going out and playing shows. There was a lot of huge Catholic families even on that block. There's probably like four or five big Catholic families just on that block. And uh, uh, the next door neighbors, the Muldoons, who I ended up working at Brian Muldoon's upholstery shop when I got to be a teenager. Uh, maybe they were into like more punk rock and more heavier stuff. They were into or the MC5 and the studio's kind of rock and roll, I think. And uh, my brothers were more into The Who, Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, Rolling Stones. So there was a lot, a lot of that going on. I was always hanging out with people who were 20 years older than me. You know, mm. even when I became a teenager, I became a songwriter. You know, as a later teenager, and I went to coffee houses and Hamtramck and stuff. I, it was all these artists from Europe that were you know in their 40s when I was 18 or whatever. So. All, all my mentors and role models were always, were always way older. When I talked to you years ago, you were talking about these blues records that had this transformative power in your life. Yeah. And you were getting these from these older, older listeners, I take it, right? Yeah, like when I worked at Muldoon's, Muldoon's shop, his goal was to sort of turn me on to all these things I had never heard. Which, you know, because when he started to realize the things I hadn't heard, it was sort of, he was kind of shocked or something, you know. So it would be like while we were working one day, he'd play me the Velvet Underground, and the next day he'd play me the Cramps, and the next day we'd listen to Fugazi. It was his goal to, as a mentor to also turn me on to all this other music, which I'm very thankful for. You know, He took me into my first punk concert, which was Fugazi. On and on and on. We also had a two-piece band together, me and him. So when we were done at the end of the day, we would move the couches and chairs over and, start, and set up and play. And, and he was a drummer, so I had to play guitar to play with him. Which wasn't really not that my big interest, you know, and I was like 15 years old. So I'm like, all right, I'll play guitar because he only plays drums. So if we're going to play together, that's... I better learn this. I guess I got to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. I had been doing that a little bit because I had gotten a reel-to-reel four-track. And uh, so I, I wanted to record drums, but I had, I had something to play along with. So I would play a guitar part and play the drums along with it. So that was what we had going on there. But it was just a perfunctory thing to play guitar. Mm-hmm. No, I had no interest in it until later on when I started thinking about writing songs. Wow. It's kind of neat that you had these people in your life who took the time to show you. I, mm. I have a friend who's a sociology professor who, who writes a lot about music and says it's much like the drug culture. Like nobody knows how to inhale or how to snort whatever shown, until yeah. somebody's shown. Right? Do you think it's the same today? Uh, you know, are, are people getting that same kick if they just accidentally download something or follow one of those website recommendations? If you yeah. like this, right, yeah, you yeah. may like this. I think that that can happen slightly in, in certain instances. And I, I definitely stumbled onto things on accident here and there, but most of it was people putting something in front of my face. But I, but I, I got to say, the funny thing was, a lot of those records he played, I did not like them. And the same thing with the blues, you know, I said, like, oh, yeah, I like the blues, like, whatever, it's okay, you know, and, you know, I like rock and roll, and I know all those guys play 
these all these blues songs from these old blues artists. It wasn't until Sun House where it really, really kicked in. Howlin' Wolf was sort of my gateway drug, you know. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, Howlin' Wolf's great, you know. And learned how to play Sitting on Top of the World when I was like 14 or something like that. But then how, I mean, maybe Sun House was later on, like maybe six, 17 or something, like 17 or 18, maybe something like that. He, he um, just blew my mind in the way that you could always, the way I still to this day hope I can still find new things to blow my mind. But that was, that'll always be the most important to me. Don't you mind fever granting in your feet? Don't mind people grinning in your face. Yeah, just bear this in mind. A true friend is hard to find. Don't you mind people grinning in your face. You know your mother will talk about you. Your sisters and your brothers too. Yes, don't care how you're trying to live. They'll talk about you still. Yes, but by who is in mind, a true friend is hard to find. Don't you mind people grinning in your face? The grinning in your face, that, that, yeah. that song in particular came up. What was it about that song that sort of transfixed you? I think it just sort of says everything at once. It says everything about what it's like to be alive and to have situations and social interaction with other people that no matter what you do, it's, in a lot of ways, it's a lose-lose situation, so you should just get used to that idea. You can't uh, live your life hoping for this scenario to occur that's never going to happen. He, he, he can say lines in songs, you know, like, it's it hard to love somebody who don't love you. and that, That's really indicative of everything we think about all day long. And that song especially, that even your own mother will talk about you. That's pretty hardcore to say something mm. like that in the song. And it's true, man. I mean... It's true for everybody. And I think that was just something that it always speaks to me because it's, like a, it's almost like a Zen thing, you know, where I can cleanse my brain by thinking of the words like grinning in your face. Sort of, sort of. Like anytime you have trouble, it just don't you mind people grinning in your face. I don't even understand that idea, like grinning in your face. is such a bizarre lyric to, to put. He could have said, don't you mind people talking about you or something, but don't you mind people grinning in your face. Mm. Now, they're going to smile at you and lie to you to your face. That's pretty pretty heavy, man. You know, so I don't know. Just it still to this day hits me like that. What kills me about what you're saying is, it wasn't just a sound. It was you were getting wisdom out of these records. Yeah, exactly. You know, somebody said, uh, "Well, why do I like the blues or whatever?" And it's like because it's the truth. It's the only thing I can think of is to say that it's the truth. There's all the ideas of what people think the blues is, like the Blues Brothers or these you know glasses or I, I woke up this morning da 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 kind of. But the blues really, uh, at its purest form, is the truth. And that's why I think all of the great music is built off of it. Because it all has a, a taste of what the truth really is. At gunpoint, someone would pick up a guitar and say, play something for, for, for these people. You would probably play something that was very similar to what the blues is. So you love this music, and you went back deep and went back to the source. And I, I got the sense, when I talked to you years ago, that the White Stripes weren't, in fact, they wanted to play this music. They loved it. They embraced it. But at the same time, it was kind of like there were almost a little sheepishness about it because there's these two mm-hmm. white kids from Detroit playing this music that is so deep and there's so much wisdom in it. Yeah. Were you feeling a little bit like we've got to attack this from our own angle, otherwise people are just going to laugh us, laugh us off the stage? Kind yeah, of very much so. It was, especially in that hipster garage rock world, that, that 
blues is already a dangerous territory to even think about performing it, you know, because there's all that horrible Stratocaster blues that everyone's gotten so dulled down by. So you, so you had to almost like have some kind of pretension to it, like a tongue-in-cheek thing, which I saw certain bands kind of doing that kind of stuff. But to me, it was like, like uh, I, don't, I don't like that. I didn't like the humor involved in the blues, which a lot of, there was a lot of humor-based blues bands at that time too, which t- totally turned me off. What I was also interested at the same time was, a, was design and a lot of things, just breaking something down to its simplistic form. I was thinking about starting to design furniture and stuff. And when Meg sat down on the drums and we played, it was, I was trying to play simply. And it ended up sounding so much more powerful than any other bands I'd played with, other people I'd played with. And we just kept doing it. And she didn't really want to do it. And so she, it was, we, kept, we kept going. But I said, there's something going on here. And it's going to take a second, but let's just keep trying. By the way, the, the aesthetic of the band kind of came from these natural things, like her liking peppermint candies, and we painted peppermint candy in her bass drum. I said, well, we should play like kids, and she had two ponytails and all that stuff. And this, there's a childishness to simplicity. Let's, let's focus on this. You're playing like a little kid. I'll play like a little kid too, but we'll interject all of this, and this will all be the blues. And nobody will know it's the blues because it'll have <laughs> yeah. all this stuff around it. It'll be harder to decipher, and maybe we'll get somewhere. Then we were going to play our first couple of shows at the Gold Dollar in the, in the corridor, and he, they, we kind of thought, ah, people aren't going to like this, and make, like, people aren't going to get this. They're just going to think I'm not a good drummer, Jack, and stuff. And like, people really liked the band instantly, which was pretty shocking. I mean, for as jaded as all those hipsters are, man, they, they kind of immediately gave us a chance. It was such a bizarre little band. It was the kind of band you would want to go see if you were on tour somewhere and you stopped in a bar and... The, yeah. This is the kind of band I would wish to see or find a record in a record rack. And that's how I started attacking those Italy records when we were recording those first Italy records, uh, 45s. I was like, well, let's make this record as if, you know, if you were searching through and you pulled this out and you found this strange record and you put it on, wouldn't it be great if it was also at good? <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm with Greg Codd, and we're talking to Jack White. Jack, you used the word hipster a couple times. <laughs> it seems like you're getting something off your chest. Hipster and this notion of authenticity. Yeah. You seem to have been happy to be liberated lately. I'm not going to care about that crap anymore. Mm-hmm. These indie rock hipsters who say, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. You mm-hmm. can, if you're going to play blues, you better sneer at it or be sarcastic or irony and yeah. blah, 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 blah. All right, explain that bug up your butt. Yeah. Well, anytime you're in, in, a, in a kind of scene of music, 
there is these parameters that you're probably not allowed to leave if you want to exist in that world. I'm sure if you're a country singer here in Nashville, you've got one format at radio, country, not mm -hmm. nine different versions of country. There's country, that's it. And if you don't record in a certain way, you're not going to get played on the radio. So every genre has their things, has their rules, and has their, like, you know, if you step outside of it, people are going to look at you cross-eyed. But the worst is white, hip, you know, <laughs> jaded, garage rock, whatever that world is. That's the harshest, I think, because you kind of you kind of can't win. There's so much pretension on every side of you. It's not supportive. It's not it's yeah. not supportive. So what you get like say what I, what I would be jealous of back there is like, you know, say like the country world right now, they're very loyal fans. Like if you start liking Garth Brooks or Faith Hill, you're going to like them to the day you die. In rock and roll, they might like you this week, but ne next month, man, I don't know. Like I remember, I remember when we came out with the second White Stripes record, the second album. I mean, still, you still give a damn about us. I remember people saying, "Oh, there's a band that went bad really fast," and it was like, "Damn, man!" Like, you know, it was like it, would, it was like, you know. The funny thing is, the most they're the most open-minded people to thinking about what can be considered art. But it gets wrapped around authenticity, which is the biggest bunk ever. You know, authenticity is, is just a, a just an evil trap. And um, we've always had fun messing with it. I mean, yeah. the, the very fact that with the White Stripes, to go out on stage and everything's red, white, and black is so completely inauthentic. Obviously, those are not your street clothes. And obviously, you know, it was, it was a big, like, ha-ha, isn't that <laughs> is it exactly what you hate? <laughs> you know, but it was twisted on itself so much that you couldn't, I think a lot of them couldn't help but like it. Uh, but you, you can, decided you can keep to keep going and that. going. I'm going to play with this. Like, I've always have, yeah, I always have. I mean, the first 45 West Street, we did a Mar Marlena Dietrich song on the B side. I mean, that's <laughs> like uh, obviously something a blues band wouldn't do. <laughs> Look me over closely. Tell me what you see. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, more of our interview with Jack White from his studio space, Third Man Records in Nashville. Later on in the show, I'll drop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. In my arms you will hide from the great big world outside. Oh, but when you come and see me, don't try to change my ways. You have a part within my heart, and there you'll always stay.
should not be the one who puts salt in your wounds. But it's always with trust that the poison is fed with a spoon. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, and my partner is Jim DeRigatis. And our guest this week is Jack White. Jim and I had the privilege of traveling to Nashville to talk with Jack in his Third Man Records studios. We returned to the interview by talking with White about his most famous project, The White Stripes. Now, that band put out six great records and really went out on top when his partner and ex-wife, Meg White, decided to leave the band. I asked Jack about the range of creativity of the band with just two people in it. But promises open a door to be broken to me. So much of the White Stripes is me, you know, it is me. The things that I, I want to do and naturally want to do. You could take a record like uh, Get Behind Me Sing that had a bunch of marimbas on it. There was no plan in my head. I didn't sit down with Megan and say, what's the next record going to sound like? We're going to have the marimbas on it. We're going to do it here, whatever. It was sort of, well, where are we going to record it? And I thought, well... Why don't we just record it here at the house on the staircase? The staircase is huge. Maybe we'll get something happening from that. We'll just bring the equipment in here. We haven't done that since Distill. We'll see what happens. I had just bought a marimba at Deeper and Breeze, uh, and I, it was in my dining room, so it was right next to us. So that got started to get played on, on, on stuff. And for all the, what, the presentation that happens at the end of when we would complete things with the White Stripes and how we put it to people, the way all the things to start with me all the time are always accidents. The blue colors on my new record are from this blue Telecaster that I had in the studio and this blue RCA public school amplifier. Accents are usually the best thing. I mean, talk about real. I mean, there's nothing more real than an accident. And, and, and uh, when you build off of that, you're, you're centering it on yourself rather than drawing up a, and hatching an evil plan and hoping it comes to fruition. <laughs> you know? I thought Meg was a perfect drummer for that band. But she oh, yeah. got a lot of shtick because she wasn't a technically great drummer. Yeah. What was it about her drumming that allowed you to, to be creative in that, in that sense and be so, to change it up with each People record? can't, uh, I mean, I'm obviously playing those songs with amazing drummers right now, live, two, two amazing drummers. Anytime I play with other people, none, nobody can do it like Meg does it. It's just perfect. It's, it's just like that thing Picasso said about you, you spend your whole life learning how to paint like a five-year-old. naturally do it like that it's just it's just perfect and she took a lot of shit. she still she always will i mean ringo takes a lot of shit, which is ridiculous but uh it's it's the thing that uh you know would get her down sometimes and i'd say look you don't understand it's bigger it's bigger than that it's bigger than you it's bigger than our band what you're doing is impossible to recreate through all the technical drummers and i know them i'm a drummer and i play with all of them and they're not doing it like when we play together it's totally different it's just electric man it's just mind-blowing it's, it's just something that if you love music and you get deeper and deeper into it, you start to realize some of those things like the Charlie Watson Ringos of these, this world were so much bigger sounding than you thought they were at first. Would, would Meg ever get discouraged? Yeah, all the time. 
it's mean what people would do to her and sexist at the same time and and ridiculous. You know, she would just say, yeah, or she'd say, like, you know, Jack, people got this to an extent in the smaller clubs. The mainstream is not going to get this at all, Jack. Like, I mean, they're not going to get me. And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know what we're supposed to do. I mean, it's, I think it's worth it. And were you disappointed when, when the band ended? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. I love, I love the White Stripes. It's the most... It's uh, it's the happiest accident that's ever happened to me. You know, I mean, I, I you can and you can meet a thousand bands, you can play in bars your whole life, and you know, to stumble upon meeting someone else, if you're in a four piece band and and you like if you're in the Who and you happen to meet Keith Moon or whatever, or or you know, Led Zeppelin gets together or something like that. Anytime you're human beings like can find each other and and create something together, and you wonder how in the hell did you guys meet each other or whatever. Well, any band I've been in, it's like that. You, you got to feel you're lucky to to be able to do this for one thing. You're lucky that you don't hate each other, the other people in this band. But that if you can create something that other people are digging, they're getting something out of. That's unbelievable, man. And to the extent a two piece band and the kind of music we were playing that actually could cross over into people's minds and and be an album people would talk about around the world is pretty ridiculous. I mean, it doesn't. It's not mm. lost on me. Mm. It'll never be lost on me. That's a bizarre, a bizarre accomplishment. It's, it's, you can't even call it an accomplishment. I have to put the word bizarre in there because it wasn't a goal of ours. You know, we weren't trying to do that. It happened to us, and it doesn't matter all the hard work and all the whatever that's involved in it. Um, you still have to be blessed with some sort of moment that just happened to be right timing or the right thing. Right? Listen to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Codd with Jim DeRogatis. We're here with Jack White at uh, in Nashville, Third Man Records. One thing I gotta say though is, the White Stripes are one of the few big bands of the last. You know, you could name it. You could name it on one hand. Mm-hmm. That went out not sucking. I mean, it's like it wasn't <laughs> like they. You know, they did one album too many. But you guys were still at a peak, I think, creatively. Mm-hmm. And then pulling the plug, there must have been a lot of pressure from. You were on a big label at the time. Mm. Management, there there must have been some external pressure to to try to keep it going on, on some level. I think early on, people got used to me making probably bad, what would be bad business decisions. You know, you don't start a tour in South America. You don't start another band while this band is doing so well, and then start another band again. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there was a lot of like, obviously, you know, our whole camp and, and everyone we work with, and no one wanted the White Stripes to stop, of course, you know, and, and me and Meg included. But, you know, when you just come to a time where it just, that's the way it is, you know, people always asked us, because we were a two-piece band, how long could it possibly last, you know? And um, we were just, well, well, we always said we, we'll know when it's time. And, and you've said you, <laughs> you don't know why Meg decided, because it was Meg who said, I I, I'm done. Uh, the decision's ultimately hers because I I wouldn't stop you know unless mm. it was something painfully obvious that this 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 has to stop you know 
because it's so fulfilling for me as a songwriter because I, I could do there's no negotiating so yeah so it's always been fulfilling to me so yeah the decision ultimately hers but I, so that's not that's not laying blame that's it's a it's a both of us deciding together really you don't like the word collaboration I've seen yeah right? talk about that Jack I guess there's yeah there's certain it doesn't it's not the biggest deal in the world I mean I don't really care it's like you know if when you're doing something that really means a lot to you like if it's a rack and tours we're in a band and we're completely dedicated to it and if someone calls it a side project you're kind of like ah oh, come on don't call it a side project man you don't understand me but if the feeling was right you might comprehend me and why do you feel the need to tease me why don't you turn it around it might Or a vanity, a vanity thing, yeah. or your leftover songs from something else that didn't work with your first word, whatever. But uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. I mean, because what ends up is you have to have history has to help you. Time has to pass before people can look at it objectively. You can go back and look at all those bands Eric Clapton was in objectively now, mm-hmm. but maybe at the time it was like, geez, man, slow down. But I guess what I'm interested in is it seems to be that there's a sort of selflessness when you're working with a band. Mm-hmm. You want this thing to become an entity of its own. Yeah. What What is that chemistry that happens? Say like, say the Dead Weather is a great example. Like we got together at the end of a tour. We're, maybe we're going to record, record a couple of songs. Maybe we'll just put out a 45 was the thought on the tour bus that, the night before. And uh, we get there and we, get, we start recording. We end up like having five, six, seven songs the first day. And then you, and you find yourself, whatever, 12, 14 songs in, and it starts to develop into this feeling and, and, and an overall vibe, and you become a band. And we, you don't, we don't talk about the kills or the white stripes or anything mm-hmm. that we, else we do when we're working on it or what people are going to think of this if we release it. And then you turn it into an album and you mix it and you say, all right, well, this, this is called the, the Dead Weather and we're going to put it out there. And then you can start saying, well, you, know, you, will, you know what people are going to think, you know, or people are going to say something because, Allison, you're in a two-piece band and I'm in a two-piece band and, and uh, they're going to call this a side project and I've already got the raconteur. It's like, what are they? You know, you, know, you could start saying like, oh, don't put it out. Just don't put it out. You know, I mean, you could talk yeah. yourself into a corner and just say, that's just bad showbiz, bad business all around. Don't do it. But damn all that stuff. I mean, there's something got created and music got created. We want this to exist, and this is what we're doing right now. you to make the leap because I know for years you'd said this whole idea of the solo record mm-hmm. was just anathema to you. It wasn't something that was on your radar screen at all. Yeah. And now here it is, the Jack White. I mean, yeah. was there any kind of a different approach where you felt like, oh, now I don't really have to write with the White Stripes or Meg White in, sure, in yeah, mind, yeah. or now I don't have to write about with Brendan Benson in mind that my songs have to complement his, or I don't have to write for Alison Mosshart's voice anymore. Was sure. this a 
a freedom kind of thing where totally. you could do anything so you want. A lot of things colliding at once. I mean, one, one thing is, let's talk about the business decisions of it. You know, that, that would have been what a manager and a label would have told me to do five years ago. Like, are you going to make a White Stripes record this year? No, probably not. Well, then you should make a Jack White record. And also, it was a happenstance. Again, it was the, the, all the Dead Weather guys were all on tour. Queens of Stone Age and Kills were touring. Brendan has a solo record coming out. Greenhorns had a record coming out. And no, they were all working. Everybody I worked with was working. Mm. So all I was doing was producing 45s for Third Man. Day in, day out, we were just making records here. You know, 45s, people coming in town, doing things like that. So I was spent the whole year obsessed with Third Man. So when this RZA session came, and RZA had to cancel this session, and I had these guys in here, Daru, the drummer, and I had these guys from out of town playing in. Uh, and there was nothing for them to do. <laughs> so I felt really bad. I didn't like, I'd never really sent anybody home like that before. So I all right, well, uh, I'll write some stuff. Like, let's try this, you know, and something I've been thinking about lately, this melody or whatever, and for, for whatever, I don't know, we'll record it. I'll use it somewhere or it'll, it'll become a raconteur song or whatever. But then that sprouted this whole thing. And that's happened with the dead weather. It happened with the raconteurs and it happened with the white stripes. All of those scenarios started like that. I've been fortunate that way. I haven't had to push myself and saying like, okay, think of a new idea, a new way to sell yourself, a new vehicle, <laughs> and write down what your dream would be about it and what it would look like, what, who would be in it. And I've never done that. It always happened for real at the beginning, and then I you know, and then I'd sculpt it into how it's presented on stage or whatever, on, or on an album. You've always been able to conceptualize things, though, and I, I, I'm curious, after the fact or not, I mean, you're able to boil things down to, like, a sentence or a word, say, this this, this summarizes what this album was about for me. Mm. And, and on this particular record, the, the word was death that I kept you know, hearing. Mm. It was kind of like a organizing theme. Yeah. Does, does that occur after the fact, or, like, you're a couple songs in, you realize, wait a minute, I'm, and then you, you start to organize the songs around... The theme that's emerging. You know, you do you do these things, and you like. Uh, I work with this artist, Rob Jones, for a long time. He did the album artwork for this album, and uh, he he just. I've never met him. I don't want to meet him, you know. And uh, he just reads my mind, you know. And we were. He sent this image over with the vulture on my shoulder, and didn't say why. A lot of times he does say why, but he didn't really say why he thought this should be the album cover. But when I saw, it, I was like, yeah, I think he's right, man. And to me, it was like this is me making friends with death. That was it for me. You had a marriage end. You had the band end. Mm -hmm. Death. Okay, that's what this album is about. Sure. Right? And people don't know. Um, they'll never know me, but you know, they, they don't know how my world is, really. So sometimes you, know, you present things to people in a way because that, you know, that give them what they want. Like you know, me and Karen saying you know, we're having a divorce party. It's like we're just giving that to people the opposite of what they want. Mm. Yeah, but we're at the same time giving them what... what what they want it's 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 funny to us because it's it's funny when you can involve art in what you do every day and that people who want insight they can find it if they want I mean, and they can make up whatever they want to and we do it with everybody that we love and who we listen to their music 
we, we, we think about, you know, if you listen to a Beatles song, what was going on. And some of those bands will just come right out and tell you, you know, this is about this, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if you listen to Hey Jude, okay, this is for John Lennon's son, Julian. Okay, this is for him. Okay, that's great. But some other songs, like, I don't really need to know, like, what John Lennon was going through and why he wrote this song or, or whatever it is. And I can listen to it and relate to it for my own life. I care that, can I put myself in that song, in that play, in that painting, and relate to what's going on here? I think sometimes, you know, people get a lot of mileage, you know, when they say, like, oh, this is he, he said he, and he said her. Mm. Forget the pronouns. I mean, can you put yourself in the song? As a songwriter, that's my job. Can I, can I come up with a, a way for you to relate to this? Can I make you Holden Caulfield and Catcher in the Rye? Can I, can I get you to be in there? That's not an easy task, you know, and and it's also, to, as I was saying before, for it to happen, for you when you want it to happen naturally. At the same time, you're playing with like you're playing with fire, and, and you, it is a very tricky scenario. I had my dream, I held your hand on that broad avenue. We crossed the road and never spoke to another as we flew. We left your man alone and dragged laughing there at us. Romantic bust, a blunder turned explosive blunderbuss. For me, the record is a lot of great stories. Like I thought the oh, the, the lyricism in uh, the the title song. Yeah. I'm still not really sure how Blunderbuss relates to what go, is going on in that song. Yeah. But I love what's going on in that song because it's the images are so sharply drawn. If you take on that responsibility and call yourself a songwriter, you, you really are... I mean, it's easy to write like a little melody or something or easy to write a, a chorus and repeat that chorus over and over again and get into people's brain. That's not really that hard to do. But it is harder to get people to involve themselves in, this, in the story. It's also hard to write a story a song that's story-based, because sometimes if you get too story-ish, it becomes pretentious, and it becomes these names and characters in a song, you know, Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge or something like that, you got to, like, then you're, you're trapped in this tale. But, um, yeah. but, are, but are you writing these lyrics down? I mean, are, is it something that you're kind of like... Well, Blunderbuss was that fun, the song. Was, yeah. That was funny, because when I started realizing I'm probably making an album now, I said, well, all right, for once in your life, I'm going to make a rule for myself, which is if I have any melodies or if I dream any melodies or things that are song-like and I wake up, I have to go write it down and record it. Don't be lazy. Get up and do it, you know. And bl- it happened twice during the record, Blunderbuss and... Um, Eponymous Poor Boy. Eponymous Poor Boy, yeah. yeah. Eponymous poor boy, that's the obligatory rock critic quote, you know, mm-hmm. let your stripes unfurl. Oh, yeah. he's talking about the end of his band, right? Yeah, yeah. And here it is. You're saying you woke up in a stone cold from a stone cold sleep, mm-hmm. five in the morning, you had this dream, you went and you recorded this song. Yeah. And that's as much conscious thought as you gave that. I dem it. I demoed it. I mean you when you write it down, you, you write those things and you put yourself in the character and this character was like a musician and obviously is not parallel to who myself it could be parallel to myself but it's but it's also a, a, what it's like to live in the hip world of music and trying to 
navigate that minefield and all of American music and, and what it all means and how important it is to the to music in general in the world, how it influences the world. But at its core, where, where it comes from, where the songs come from and how to get away with them. And you're like, the, yeah, like you, know, you could write a line, a line like, you know, just let the stripes unfurl when I'm talking about the American dream and the American flag. And, and you, know, people, you know, like my friend would say, like, well, you know, people are going to think about that line. It's like, well, I don't care. Like, go, go ahead and let them think that. And you know what? Hey, maybe it's true. I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean it's, it's, a, it's a nifty lyric to have three different ways to look at it. I mean, that's what you dream about as a songwriter. Can, can you have that where you're not? Like I was Later. saying with storytelling, where you're not making them think. You have to think this yeah. one thing. That's only, the only thing you can think about this. But Jack, we've both interviewed you before, and you were always a great interview. I think the first time I talked to you, you were, you, you told me, ah, I, I was just, what, what are you doing, Jack? How you doing? And we'd talk for Guitar World, uh-huh. and you, you, I'm watching the sound and the fury. Right? <laughs> I don't know if that was true or not, but that was the perfect thing you would want Jack White at that stage to say, right? How perfect is that? Mm. All right, so you've always, you haven't done a lot of interviews. You've never been this frank as you've been lately. Mm. More importantly, I don't think you've ever given us evidence that you've been having as much fun as you are these days. <laughs> you know, everything you're talking about, not yeah. being hamstrung by authenticity, yeah. you know, allowing yourself to be open, and not caring what the hipsters think. Mm-hmm. Um, was it work to get to this place? I mean, you really seem to be enjoying yourself. I guess I've had to teach myself over the years when and where the struggles kind of lie, you know? I mean, in, in a big sense, you don't really want your artists to be having a good time, you know? Fun on stage <laughs> yeah. to me is like a, it's like a funk band or something. Like, you know, those it's guys not are authentic. Fun. Well, it's like, you know, I, I expect like Parliament Funk Duck to be having fun. You right, know? right. And they can also right. be making great art. People say, was that show fun last time? I'm like, I mean, I don't know. I'm like, fun? Like, I... It's such a tough word. That's like a roller coaster ride or something. Like I, I don't really know. I, I know. I, I feel like I got somewhere. I mean that, and that's fulfilling and enjoyable for sure. But what you're talking about, I think, is more important, which is things that I've come to in my own life. Try to understand how to how to enjoy life, which was very difficult for me in my twenties to actually figure out how to enjoy life itself. And I think that Third Man Records, this whole institution here, has opened up a lot of ways for me able to take deep breaths and to do a lot of things I wanted to do that under older rules or under different environments were not possible. Mm. You know, Because in my head, I will release a John Lee Hooker record just as much as importance as putting out an Elvira picture disc mm-hmm. or have a Conan O'Brien spoken word comedy 45 to me is just as important as you know releasing a Jerry Lee Lewis live album recorded here or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're all to me important and, and, and make sense to me. They're all art. They're all creation. They're all beautiful to me. Going forward the next 10 years, as, as a music fan, where do you see your world going? Are you yeah. depressed about what you're seeing going forward or are you energized about the possibilities going forward? With music, particularly the things that work. Say, look at that question from like Third Man standpoint. Like the things that work from Third Man. Like other people who've come here, work at other labels, and 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 love what's going on here. And some people go and confused about what's going on here. Or some people say like, oh, you're trying to emulate something. Like take that person. Like some. I remember one week in one week here, someone came in on on a Monday and said, oh, you're trying to do this like Apple Records. And on Tuesday, someone comes. Oh, this is like Paisley Park. It's like Prince's Paisley Park. And on a Wednesday, someone came and said, oh, you get this like chess records vibe of this place. <laughs> and on and I swear to God, every day someone said this other scenario. It's like, well, and I finally said at some point, well, at one point it's going to be, this is what, this is like Third Man Records. Third Man Records is like Third Man Records. I mean, uh, 
But you know what I'm saying? When you attach yourself to things that you love and, and you amplify them, you say them out loud, people, if they're digging it too, they want, want to know why, where it's coming from, what your point is. And, and some people do say the Luddite, the Luddite thing, or you just want things to be like they are in the past. Like, absolutely not. I mean, the worst word in the world is retro. It's just so... <laughs> uh, to try to recreate some moment and, and make it happen again, I can't stand. Like, all the music that I love, say, like, I loved... When I, got, when I was a teenager, I started to like really like rockabilly music, but I started to get really turned off by the fact that people were trying to recreate this one moment from 1957 or something. But then I started to realize there's bands like Flat Duo Jets or, that can live in that world and create something totally new. And I think that's what we're always trying to do here. Like, yes, what's, we want to put out music. Well, what's the format where, that we love that makes the most sense, that sounds the best, all those reasons? It's vinyl. Some people can say, "Oh, that's nifty! You guys are putting out vinyl records. That's nifty. You want to, well, you want it to be like the old days." I'm like, "That's their shit." Yes, yeah, their shit. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna hear that, but it's the more important thing is that you're trying to create something new that didn't exist before. The 15 year old out there um, who's used to listening to st- stuff on shuffle over a, in his buds earbuds, and yet you're putting out these art objects, these gatefold sleeve albums yeah. with beautiful art inside and lyrics and everything. Yeah, you're convinced that those guys are going to be able to relate to that to that kind of physical thing. I, I think that anybody can. I think if you took a kid and you watched movies on an iPad with your son over and over again and he was getting off on that and loved that and then you took him to a movie theater and showed him the same movie, he can't help but love it more. Mm-hmm. I think if he liked some music and you actually had a record player put in his room next to his bed and said, here, drop the needle on it and he was staring at that circle spinning around, he couldn't help but find himself <laughs> more involved in the music. You're a part mm-hmm. of it now. You're placing the needle down and you can see it moving. There's also a thing, there's also some kind of dangerous sort of black magic there where like the, the idea of things moving I think is very important. I think that there's beauty in romance when you can actually see an object moving. And, in, and these new technologies, how, how much easier they are, how much more portable and, and easier to use they are, are brilliant, but you don't see things moving. And I think that's something that as human beings we need, just like we need to look at a campfire, why we're, why we're magnetized to look at a campfire is the same way we need to see things moving. Well, we have been here at Third Man Records in Nashville talking to Jack White. Jack, thanks for spending so much time with us. Thank Having you. Us appreciate in your it. house. <laughs> thanks for coming, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, when you touch my hand and talk sweet talk, I got a knocking in my knees and a bubble in my walk and I'm trembling. That's right, you got me shaking. What'd you think about our interview with Jack White? Let us know by calling our hotline, 888-859-1800. Coming up after a short break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, I'll drop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox.
I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And as often as possible here on the show, one of us likes to parachute in, like the Queen and James Bond, to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and play you a track we can't live without. Greg, it is your turn this week. Thank you, Jim. My mind, and I know your mind, is on this guy, Bill Doss, who just died at the age of 43. You talk about a sudden death. Uh, The cause of death has still not been determined as of this moment, but nobody saw this coming. Founding member of the great band, the Olivia Tremor Control, part of that Elephant Six Brain Trust, four childhood pals out of Ruston, Louisiana. Bill Doss, along with his friend Will Cullen Hart, who are in the Olivia Tremor Control, along with Robert Schneider, who later became the ringleader in the Appleton Stereo, and Neutral Milk Hotel's Jeff Mangum. I mean, these four guys were pals. They fantasized about creating this kind of music that stood up to the classic albums that they were hearing as kids. You know, we're talking about the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds or classic Pink Floyd, classic Beatles. They said, why can't we make records that great, that ambitious, on a budget. We don't necessarily have to, the money to go into a big recording studio to make these kind of records, but we can do them in our bedroom, in our home recording studios, with our equipment on our terms. Now, just recently, they started making music together again. In fact, they just played a great set at the Pitchfork Music Festival. You know, everybody who saw them and heard them said, man, they sound great. Can't wait to hear some more new music from these guys. What was it that made them so special? Well, they made these incredibly dense, layered records. The Olivia Tremor Control, in particular, on their two albums, 1996 record, Unrealized Film Script, Dusk at Cubist Castle, and the 1999 album, Black Foliage, Animation Music, Volume 1, specialized in layering sounds, juxtaposing avant-garde experiments with truly beautiful melodies. I have to admit, I got a little choked up listening to uh, Black Foliage the last few days, Jim, especially when the song I'm about to play comes cascading out of the speakers. It is preceded by these kind of noisy elements. It's almost chaotic. And then this glorious melody comes Mm. tumbling out at you. It's like a waterfall washing over you. And I think that element of surprise is what made these albums continuously wonderful to listen to because it was just one long sequenced journey that they would take you on through the headphones. Here's Hideaway from the Black Foliage album by the Olivia Tremor Control on Sound Opinions.
That was the Olivia Tremor Control with Hideaway, Greg's Desert Island Jukebox pick in tribute to Bill Doss, dead at the age of 43. The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark Bourbon, it is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we take the first of our two-part look at the year 1977, the year punk broke. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. A special thanks to Third Man Records and Laura Elderi. Deborah Olalea is our intern. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. And our assistant producers are Michael DeBonis and Annie Minoff. Not forgetting our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, who thinks it was all downhill for Jack White after Goober and the Peas. <laughs> Operator, can you help me? Help me if you please. Give me the right area code and the number that I need. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, Jim. Hi, Greg. This is Larry Salvatore calling from Joliet, Illinois. And I want to commend you on your great dissection of David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust album. You really got into the, the spirit of the album in the fact that it's a celebration of otherness. And the one thing that I want to, to call to your attention is that the album that Bowie is posing in the dress on is not the album previous to Ziggy Stardust, but rather two albums before Ziggy Stardust, The Man Who Sold the World, in which he is wearing his man's dress. The album, Hunky Dory, is the cover where he's more of a combination of Lauren Bacall meets Greta Garbo. So obviously Bowie was playing with gender confusion and and all these fluid aspects of identity before Ziggy Stardust. But other than that, you're spot on in what you have to say about that incredible landmark album that is Ziggy Stardust. So thanks for all you do on the radio and keep up the good work. He could let come by smiling He could leave unto high they came on so loaded, man Well hung in snow white tan So where were the spiders? Hey, this is William from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I enjoyed the dissection of the David Bowie album. Ziggy Stardust, the word was back in the day when I was first listening to the album that the title track was based on Jimi Hendrix because of uh, he played it left hand, played it too far, and the line jiving us that we were voodoo. Ziggy played for time, jiving us that we were voodoo. The kids were just crass. He was the nasty with God-given Took it all too far, but boy, could he play guitar. I wondered if you'd heard uh, anything about that. But anyway, yeah, you guys are pretty much right on. Thanks, and I enjoyed the show. Cheers, bye. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Bart calling from Ypsilanti. Uh, thank you so much for praising John Lord of Deep Purple and his innovations on the Hammond B3 organ. 
I think he's left sort of an indispensable mark on music by bringing this instrument to the forefront. has been to music, so I think I need you guys to spend at least an hour just covering the importance and the beauty of this instrument. Anyway, guys, it's awfully nice to hear uh, an old school reference like John Lord, so thanks so much. We miss him, and love the show. Thanks a lot. Hello, my name is Chris Olson. I am a particle accelerator operator at the National Accelerator Laboratory in Batavia, Illinois. I wanted to tell you about some of the music that we listen to. It runs the gamut in the main control room of 1920s era uh, early jazz all the way through modern techno. A lot of oldies with some of the, the older operators. Music certainly affects our work, but not so much in the accomplishments that we do, but uh, in the attitude that we have while we're working, it certainly lightens it up. Thank you very much. I enjoy your show. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Nobody knows Particle Man.